Thank you for that song. Such a great song, huh? Praise the name of the Lord, our God. All right, well, I gave you a little homework over the uh, week. Did any uh, of you read those passages that we suggested? Okay, I see some head nods. Good, good. Well, we want to talk about uh, we want to talk about them today, and uh, continue our thinking about the kingdom. Here's the uh, diagram that we looked at a little bit. Uh, we had some discussion with Scott last week about whether one of those circles should be or ovals should be larger than the other. But I've gone back to this in part because I I think it's important we say to ourselves that those distinctions which are so significant for us in light of God's kingdom get minimized. And uh, particularly the case because those aren't the only two circles we could mention, right? Uh, we, We could go on and go right around and list many other kingdoms that impact our world, impact us, right? We could could spend the rest of the morning just adding circles and thinking about how God's kingdom interfaces with all these other kingdoms. So what would you add there? The kingdom of, uh, I mean, you could say the, how about the kingdom of Wall Street, Right? That, that impacts us. In other words, economics is a significant sphere of authority because kingdom is about authority. It's about impacting people and influencing the way they live. And so the kingdom of Wall Street, what marks that? We've said that down here in the political kingdoms, uh, it's fear, anger, and intent. They're the big ones. But if you were talking about the kingdom of Wall Street, what would it be? Well, it'd still be fear. You know, you look on some, uh, some websites that list the, the daily stock market results, and what do they have on there? They have something they call a fear index. Isn't that great? A fear index. How scared are you that you're going to lose all your money? Well, fear index kind of measures how people think about that. So fear would be a big one in the, in the kingdom of Wall Street. Uh, what else? Well, how about, uh, how about greed and covetousness? And, and each of these kingdoms, see, they have their own gods. That's where they derive their authority. So greed and covetousness, remember what Paul says? Covetousness is what? It's idolatry. In other words, in the kingdom of Wall Street, in the economic realm, getting and holding, possessing, that's a god that wields authority. 
So we could go on and do that. We're not going to do it. But what we are trying to think about then is the kingdom of God, which is other. It's different. Last week I called it the third, the third way, right? But we've already got more than three competing ways. And so we'll just call it the other way, the different way. And I want to examine with you some of what that looks like. I mean, it's suggested right there in that Paul in Romans 14 gives us the three driving characteristics of the kingdom of God, righteousness, joy, and peace. Of course, you'd have to add love in there because that's the, the greatest of virtues for Paul. But it stands in contrast to these other kingdoms, and, and we're going to try and think about that. So... Particularly what I want to reflect on with you today is kingdom authority. This, this idea that kingdoms have a kind of rule. Kingdoms tell people how to act. So, it's not too surprising that right at the beginning of the gospel stories, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this issue of kingdom authority, especially Matthew and Luke. We're going to look at Luke this morning. So here we are. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. All right, so let's think about the temptation. Luke lists it as the second temptation. Matthew lists it as the third. But the basic form is the same. And... uh, We need to get our heads around this a little bit. Luke, Matthew both tell us that following his baptism, Jesus is full of the Spirit and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And Matthew makes it very explicit. He's led there by the Spirit in order to be tempted. It's not quite that clear in Luke. Out into the wilderness... He's led there from the Jordan. Remember the the way the story goes, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry begins with his baptism. He hears that his cousin John is out by the Jordan River, and he's preaching to crowds saying, get ready, the kingdom of God is ready to break in, and you folks aren't prepared. This kingdom is so different. You don't know how to live in this kingdom. You wouldn't be accepted if you tried to break in. 
You need to repent and confess your sins and be baptized. And then that'll get you ready for this kingdom. So, Jesus hears about that, and he, he goes out and he joins the crowds, and he even gets baptized by John. Interesting dialogue between the two of them. But as he's coming up out of the, the water, we're told that the heavens are opened, and a great voice speaks and says, This is my Son, whom I love. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, descends and lights upon Jesus. And, of course, Luke is picking that up here in chapter 4 when he tells us that Jesus came up from the Jordan and he was full of the Spirit. That that goes right back to the baptism. This is my son, God says. And and you need to understand that, that that's all kingdom language. Right? Because the kingdom is about God fulfilling his promise to King David a millennium before that David would never lack a descendant to sit upon his throne and that God would raise up one of his descendants who would have a special relationship to God so that he would build the temple of God and his kingdom would be established as an everlasting kingdom that would not pass away. And then the interesting thing God says to David about this coming king who will be the Messiah, he says, I will be to him a father, and he'll be my son. So you got to keep that in the back of your mind as, as you see the story of the gospel opening and Jesus going out to be baptized by John the Baptist, who's announcing that the kingdom is here. The promises are going to be fulfilled. And then Jesus gets baptized, and the heavens are open, and God says, this man, this is my son. And that's, that's a messianic title, right? That's going right back to the Davidic covenant. This is the guy that was promised. <clears throat> So, we're talking kingdom, and we're talking the king arriving, and the the drama begins, and the the main character marches onto the stage, and it's like the, the spotlight focuses on the central character. God says, this is the one. And the Spirit comes upon him, that's Old Testament prophecy as well, and then the first thing on the agenda... As soon as he leaves the Jordan, the Spirit says, off to the wilderness. Why? Because there's a confrontation that immediately begins when the kingdom of God enters the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus, led of the Spirit, goes out to confront the force and the power that is behind all the other kingdoms. The great enemy of God. So the stage is set for this confrontation, which is a temptation. 
a temptation to see if the devil can once again do what he's always done before. And that is to distract human beings from what God wants them to do and to be. What's going to happen? So they meet. And uh, we're skipping that first temptation. We're going to this second one. Now, what is this temptation about? Well, it's about power. Because kingdoms are about power, aren't they? So, the devil says, uh, look, I'm going to show you all the possibilities. And uh, this is probably a visionary experience. We don't know for sure, but, but I'm good with it being a visionary experience. Jesus is given a vision of all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and their authority, their power. Not just existing ones. I mean, how about the whole of history? Babylon, Media Persia, Greece. Rome, which was the current power, Egypt, China, Russia, the U.S. of A. I mean, talk about power, huh? There it is. It's all there. All there. The devil says, I have been given authority. Which is interesting to think about. How how do we understand that, right? Do Do you believe a liar if he says he has all authority and he'll give it to you? Well, but he certainly has some kind of power. I mean, Jesus will later call him the prince of this world. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a power word, right? So he's got some kind of authority which he offers to use on behalf of Jesus to make him the super ruler. And imagine what a good one he would make. Imagine imagine the, the poor being blessed. Imagine human trafficking being stamped out immediately. No drug problems. We could use a king like that, couldn't we? Think of all the good that could come from that. And as we're going to see, it's a real temptation for Jesus. And I don't claim to understand the psychology of that, but the Scripture makes it very clear it was a real temptation. Maybe the best way, or one way that at least is helpful to me, maybe it'll be helpful to you, 
is, is to kind of move out of the biblical story for a little bit and, and get a, a little different view on this from a, a man who was a, a, a great Christian and I think was maybe the most creative literary mind of the 20th century. And, and that's J.R.R. Tolkien. You know the story of the ring? Lord of the Rings? Uh, <clears throat> hopefully you've read the books. Uh, if not, maybe you saw the movie. You can get the basic idea from the movies. It's about the, the coming of a king to restore a long-forgotten line, the kingship of Isildur and, and his descendants. Aragorn is the, is the hidden king. Get the biblical imagery there. But what they have to do is they have to supplant and destroy the power of the evil dark lord Sauron. And connected with that is the fact that Sauron has his greatest power residing in a ring of power. This is the great ring of all the rings. Greater than the rings of the elves or the rings of the dwarves or the rings of mortal men. One ring to rule them all. One ring to bind them. One ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. It's the ring of the dark lord. The problem is, actually it's, it's good in the story, but the problem for Sauron is he lost his ring in an earlier battle years ago. And uh, they thought it was lost forever, even though Sauron looked for it, but now it's been discovered. And, and it's been discovered by the good guys. Bilbo has got the ring, and he gives it to his nephew Frodo, who's one of the good guys. And Frodo just keeps it. He doesn't know what it is. It's kind of a magical ring. But, uh, but Gandalf, the wise wizard, begins to suspect he knows the ancient stories. He begins to suspect that the ring is actually the great ring of power. And so now the question is, what do you do with the great ring of power when you're among the good guys? And that, therein lies the tale, right? Because Aragorn is now present. He's the king even though he's hidden. And, and here's the thing. Of all the people in the world, the good guys, Aragorn actually has the power to wield the ring. And so many of his friends say, this is, they don't say it's God's provision, but, but this is the mysterious workings of fate that the the power of Sauron has been delivered over to the good guys. So Aragorn, let's seize the power. Think of the good that could be done. We can defeat Sauron at his own game. And then we can reestablish the ancient kingdom and Middle Earth will be restored and blessed. And Gandalf says, it's not going to work. <laughs> you can't take Sauron's ring 
and beat Sauron at his game. Even if you might defeat Sauron, there's a power in the ring which will destroy its holder. And so the great mission in the Lord of the Rings is how do you convey the ring back to Mount Doom where it was originally forged and destroy the ring? You can't use it. Now, it seems to me that Tolkien just has great insight, not only to the nature of evil, but into the biblical story. Jesus is offered the power of the kingdoms of the world. He refuses to use it. But this will be a temptation for three years from the time his ministry begins until he's on the cross. It's the temptation that comes up again and again. So here's a couple years later. You know this story in Matthew 16? Jesus says to his disciples, who do they say that I am? Oh, they say you're Elijah returned. Or maybe you're Jeremiah or you're one of the prophets. Jesus says, what do you say? Peter's got the answer. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the king we've been waiting for. Good, Peter. You got that right. And you got it right because my father revealed it to you. And what's the next thing he says? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. God be gracious to you, Lord. This shall never be to you. You don't have the right script. You're the main character in the play, but you you haven't learned your lines. But he turned and said to Peter, Go, Satan. You are an offense to me. Jesus detects in Peter's attitude the same attitude, the same enticement that the devil gave him at the beginning of his ministry. That's why the saying to Peter, go Satan. You do not savor the things that are of God, but those that are of men. This is not the kingdom of men. This is the kingdom of God we're talking about. So there's a choice being made here by Jesus, all through his ministry. And what's the choice? Let's let's say it this way, huh? It's the choice of power over versus power under. You get power over, right? That guy's about to get squashed like a bug. All kinds of power over. That might be the power of an employer, the power of losing your job. Uh, It could be the power of economics, big nations against small nations. It could be military power. That's maybe what we think of most, but... There's all kinds of powers in the kingdoms of this world and they are characterized 
as power over. I get power, I get authority so that I can compel you to do what I want. Happens in marriages, friendships, all all kinds of places. This is the way of the kingdoms of the world. Power over versus power under. There you go. That's the great image, huh? John 13. The servant washing the feet of his disciples. And and here, even at the end of three years of ministry, of being with Jesus, they still don't get it. They're speechless at what he does. What are we going to call this power under? The power of the servant. I mean, Paul... Paul gets gets it very clearly, doesn't he? Philippians, he says, of Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing and took upon himself the form of a servant. Power under. So that's the night before he's crucified. And here's just a little bit later in the garden. Remember they go off to the garden where Jesus is going to pray and where the mob eventually comes and arrests him. And as they go, he says, do you have any swords? Yeah, we got two swords. Okay, that's enough. Let's go. And when the mob comes, the question of the disciples is, still, Lord, do you want us to strike with the sword? Power over. We're ready. You say the word. Behind you, we will be victorious. Shall we strike? And Peter, impetuous Peter, he doesn't wait for the answer. He just pulls the sword and whacks off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus says to him, to Peter, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take the sword shall perish by the sword. Then he heals the guy's ear. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once place at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Roman legion is between 4 and 6,000. You can do the math. Jesus is saying, "I, I don't... I don't need these two swords. If this confrontation is about power over, it's a done deal. But it's not about power over. It is about power under. Once again, right at the end, Jesus is still making this decision. You sense the choice is still there. The disciples are giving him the choice again. And then it's only a few hours later before the Roman governor Pilate. Pilate represents the power of the day. The supreme power, the Roman Empire. He speaks for Rome. 
He says to Jesus, you're the king of the Jews? They're telling me, your own people are telling me, you're starting an insurrection here. Not a good idea. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't mean that his kingdom isn't in the world or going to be in the world. The of there, not of this world, is the idea of source. He's saying, my kingdom does not find its source in what other kingdoms find their source in, namely power over. My kingdom's from another place, and it has a a different understanding of power. It's the path and the power of suffering love, which for the disciples and for Pilate, I mean, he's not worried about that. Power of suffering love. My goodness, hang him on a cross. We'll show you what power is. But that's the choice. The choice that the kingdom puts before Jesus and it puts before all of us, put before his own disciples. And for three years they didn't get it, friends. And, you know, so on the one hand, let's be a little forgiving of ourselves when we don't get it. Because it's hard. What does this choice look like? What does the kingdom of God look like? Well, let's, uh, let's wrap it up with this. We'll come back to it another week. The kingdom, the kingdom looks like the king. It looks like suffering love. And I don't like that. Do you like that? I I like a kingdom that knows how to get stuff done. How to exercise power over people. It's not not the kingdom that Jesus brought. Well, so I'm going to leave you with a few questions, huh? First question is, are you in God's kingdom? How do you know? Well, go back to John the Baptist. He said the kingdom is at hand, so repent, believe the good news. Repent of your sins. Confess your sins and be baptized. That's what he told the people. And then Jesus, you know, Jesus had the same message after John got put in prison. He preached the same thing. How do you get in God's kingdom? You need to be born again. John chapter 3. We get in the kingdom by faith, by believing that God is actually fulfilling his ancient promises and he invites us into that kingdom. That's how you get in. So are you in God's kingdom? Ah, but now, here's the other side. Is God's kingdom in you?
Is it me? Or how about this related question? Is God's kingdom in the church? If the kingdom looks like Jesus, does the church look like Jesus? And the answer to that is a complicated question. So you can certainly find times, places, and situations where the church does look like Jesus. Because the kingdom really has come. Unfortunately, you can also find many, many places and times when the church looks like the kingdoms of the world. And that's what I want to go to next week. I think we're going to do a little history lesson next week and think about, is God's kingdom in us? So stay tuned. And keep thinking about those texts, especially that uh, John 18 text. What is the kingdom that Jesus brought? And let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was all your delight who always did the things that pleased his Father, and the one who is ushering in the everlasting kingdom of righteousness and joy and peace and love and truth. God, we want to be part of that kingdom. But we ask you that you would graciously come among us by that same Spirit that filled and guided Jesus and, and fill our hearts, Lord. And as we think about who we are as the people of God in the midst of the kingdoms of the world, will you instruct our hearts that a watching world might see Jesus in us. That would be so good for us, God, and it would be to the glory of your name because it's nothing that we could produce in ourselves. So we invite you in these coming weeks as we think about your word to change us, mold us, and make us kingdom people, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.